Hello, everyone. Are you guys in for a treat today? Visitors, as Pastor Gabe said, special welcome to you. Um, I want to welcome you in by saying, guess what? Today, we get to teach about wrath, the wrath of God. You picked a good day to visit. Glad that you guys are here. Um, We are going to teach about wrath. When's the last time uh, that many of you heard a teaching on the wrath of God in a church? Never or a long time, right? Why is that? Why is that? I think so much of that is because of a basic misunderstanding of what God's wrath is. And we're going to talk about that in depth as we go through this, what God's wrath is. So again, welcome. We are talking uh, about God's wrath, but we're teaching through the book that is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's important. Sometimes we'll shorten that to just revelation. It's never revelations. It's revelation, but it properly, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here's what we need to know, that even though in this book it talks a lot about God's wrath, God's judgment. We see that over and over again as a theme through this. Here's what's important to know. It's a book primarily about the revelation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So if you take a book that is primarily, again, the title, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, so it's about Jesus. How do you reconcile that then with the general attitude, I'm talking general population, that it's all about judgment and wrath? How do you take Jesus, our Messiah, the loving Savior, his foremost commandment is love the Lord your God and love one another. He's all about love and all about mercy and all about forgiveness. Then somehow or another, we'd make this mental shift to, okay, now it's the final book of the Bible, and now it's all about judgment and wrath and hate. You ever heard the teaching, there's the the angry old God of the Old Testament, and then there's the warm and fuzzy God of the New Testament. I've heard it boiled down to just that. God was angry, now he's not. That is a basic misunderstanding of who God is. God is the same today as he has always been. His purposes today are the same that they have always been. And it's not he was this, now he's this. And hopefully that becomes clear as we teach through. It is not a scary book about judgment and wrath and suffering and pain. It's a book of hope. It's a book that should point us to the need, number one, the need for a Savior in Jesus Christ. But then number two, the alternative. How many of you know that knowing what a blessing is doesn't have a lot of meaning unless you understand what the alternative is? Freedom, grace, mercy in God, all those things that we find in our Savior Jesus Christ don't have as much meaning if we don't understand what it would be like without that. And in part, that's what we learn as we start progressing through Revelation. So we're going to get there. My job is to read this scripture and make it come to life. Make you understand God's heart through this. I want, when we're done with the lesson today all about God's wrath and judgment. I hope that you're left when you leave here of knowing how great and how merciful our Father God is. That's what I want your takeaway to be. Okay, and it's the only scripture that really literally says 
In Revelation 1.3, that blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things that are in it. So simply by hearing it or reading it on your own later, and I encourage everybody to read through this on your own and study it on your own, you will be blessed. The important thing is to heed the things that are in it. So not in one ear, out the other. Pay attention to it. And think about how it applies to your life. And again, that's my job as a pastor is to help you see that application. So let's get to it. Let's get to it. Two weeks ago, we saw as we started to open these scrolls, okay, there was the scroll with seven seals. And we started to unwrap this scroll and look. And each seal, as each seal was broken and revealed something inside this scroll, we learned a little bit about a judgment about one of God's judgment towards a sinful, rebellious mankind. And as each seal was opened, those judgments got progressively more intense. We see that again and again, getting more intense, more intense, more intense, until we get to the sixth seal. In the sixth seal, there was a lot going on. There was earthquakes, there was thunder, there were lightning, there were mountains shifting in place, the seas were rising. It was a chaotic, calamitous time on earth. Like that word, calamitous? I like that. You don't get to hear that very often. And then last week, last week in the midst of all this, we learn that God pauses. Even in the midst of all that chaos, God pauses, stops the very wind to make sure that his people are marked. His people are kept safe from that from the things that are happening, and that they are marked for salvation. We learned that last week, and so that's where we were. That tells us that no matter what's going on, no matter how how terrible and chaotic things look around us, God's wrath is not indiscriminate. He doesn't just flip the switch of wrath and walk away and say, well, let's see how this turns out. It's not like that. It's not indiscriminate. It certainly isn't hateful. And it certainly isn't sinful. We have to be careful when we talk about wrath. Um, I'll talk about translations later. It translates as, as anger and as rage and some of these human emotions that we can have. Humans are incapable of wrath without it being sinful. We just can't do it. That is a tool that we cannot handle. God's wrath is different. And so on that note, we need to take, before I get into the scripture for today, chapter 8 we're going to be into, I need to take a few minutes to really carefully illustrate God's wrath versus our wrath, or more accurately, maybe our understanding of what wrath is. It matters that we have accuracy on this. And so I'm going to talk about it in the Bible. The word wrath or variations of the word wrath are found all over, all the way from the Old and the New Testament. It's found all over the place. But primarily, you can boil down the wrath of God into two different types. We're talking about specifically the wrath of God. The wrath of God can be punishment or the wrath of God can be discipline. It's still wrath, but it can be punishment, and it can be discipline. I'm going to go into that a little bit, and hopefully it'll be clear to you as we go through. This is what God's discipline looks like. 
God's discipline is found in, in scriptures such as Revelation 6.17. This is from just a couple weeks ago. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Okay, the great day of their wrath. Remember, who's the there? Father God and Lord Jesus, right? That's their wrath. The great day of that wrath has come. Now, that word wrath, this is where your Greek lesson comes in. One of two for today. That word wrath translates as the Greek word orge. And orge means, literally it means to, to team or to swell or to rise up. But what the implication is, is it is a disciplined, it's not a sudden outburst, but it, it's a controlled and passionate rising up of, of righteous anger, in God's case, against sin. In other words, it's not, so it's not a sudden outburst that's going to cause you to lash out. It is the result of something that is swelling up inside you. Some translations use the word indignation, but a settled indignation. It's measured, okay? And it's as a result of things that are happening, okay? That's, that's what, that, what orge implies there. It is a necessary discipline in response to repeated behavior, okay? Much like children. Okay, a child, you want to discipline them, you want to correct them, you're going to do it little by little with increasing consequences, right? First, we start by sending you to bed early or maybe without your dinner. Then we'll take away your video games. Then we'll take away your TV. Then you're grounded, and it escalates. And this is what we see. And the point of all that is you're trying to correct a behavior, and this is exactly what God is trying to do. And we find this all throughout the New Testament and Revelation. Revelation uh, chapter 11, verse 18, and we'll get there soon. But the first half of it says, And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged. Okay, the nations were enraged. The nations were enraged because of they were starting to lose their power. The Antichrist had given them this power, and they had started to see that, but the tide is now turning, and they're starting to see this loss of power and this loss of control, and it's enraging them. But then it says, and, the t- um, and your wrath came, your wrath being Father God's wrath. Now, what does Father God's wrath look like? And how do you justify God's wrath with God who loves us? That word wrath is, in general, on the surface, it's a harsh term, right? It's a harsh term. There's a scripture, it's, it's really obscure, that kind of illustrates the difference between punishment and discipline, I think. Uh, maybe if there's any of you out there who, like, consider yourself scholars, you might know this scripture. It's from the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16. Anybody know that one? Can anybody quote it to me? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Keep going. Shall not perish, but have eternal life. How do you reconcile that God with the angry, vengeful, wrathful, hateful, hurtful, mean God that we hear about? You don't reconcile those two because they're the same God. 
There is no this God and then this God. God loved you, loved the world so much that he not only made a way then, but he continues to make a way even in the midst of his wrath that's made to correct. If you love someone enough to make sure that they don't suffer consequences eternally, you will make a way up to and including discipline. Am I right? This is what we see, God's discipline. It's a necessary response. Romans chapter 4, verse 14 says, For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. Okay, that one, we have that on the screen here. The law, this is Paul teaching about this. Remember, he's saying, hey, before the law, there, there was no violation. Before the law was given, now he's talking about Mosaic law, the law that was given to Moses all the way back then. Before that, there was, you couldn't break the law because there wasn't a law. This is God's law. And so there was no wrath. But once the law was given, along with that comes God's wrath. So how do we make sense of a scripture like this and balance it out? Here's an easy way. You take that word wrath and you substitute the word correction. Because that's the point of God's wrath. At this point, anyway. For the law brings about correction. But where there is no law, there is also no violation. God's wrath, in this case, orge wrath, is meant to be corrective. It's meant to discipline you in a corrective type of a way. That's, that's the point for it. After the law was given, though, wrath then turns to discipline. The word for wrath, anger, or fury, okay, so it's all, all kind of closely related. Wrath, anger, or fury appear well over 600 times in the Old Testament alone, okay? 500 of them, almost 500 of those times, is in relation to God's wrath, okay, to God's wrath towards his people. Only one time in all of those, 499 times, before the law, it was only one time where God used that on his people. Before the law. After the law come the rest of the 499 times. In other words, God laid down the law to correct us, to give us a yardstick to measure ourselves against and a, a standard for behavior. And then comes the correction when we are not meeting that standard. Does that make sense to you? God's people are repeatedly throughout the Old Testament and New are repeatedly corrected. While those who don't have God, pagans in other words, they are punished. And we see that time and time again. So in other words, God's wrath is meant to be corrective discipline, not the inflictive, inflicting of punishment or pain. That's how we reconcile a loving God with the word wrath. Discipline is training that corrects or improves character. So out of the dictionary, out of Webster's dictionary, it says discipline is training that corrects, molds, or perfects the mental faculties or moral character. That's the definition of it. But here's something I found interesting. Without discipline, children are going to be deficient. Now, we are God's children, but let's look at a secular website. I started looking at this word, and I'll tell you, I was kind of surprised. I thought, or my assumption was, 
that if I started looking at secular websites about disciplining children or discipline in general, what I would find is an overall softening that, no, discipline is a, that's an old concept and that's past. We really don't discipline anymore. It's more about instruction. That's what I thought I'd find. That's not what I found. What I found, interestingly enough, from multiple, multiple websites. In fact, they all pretty much echoed the same thing. There's a website called verywellfamily.com, totally secular website, but it talks about what happens to children when they are not disciplined, okay? Children who are deficient in discipline. Here's some of the results. They will lack self-control. They will not respect their parents or other authority figures. They won't know what appropriate behavior is. They will be willful, selfish, and generally unpleasant company. They will not have social skills that are important for making friends, such as empathy, patience, and knowing how to share. They'll be much more likely to engage in negative behaviors that are harmful and even potentially dangerous. Here's the last one, though. They will be unhappy. Children who are not disciplined ultimately are just going to be unhappy. Now, all those behaviors, does that sound like somebody who doesn't have the fruits of the Spirit growing in them? Because that's what the fruits of the Spirit are, peace, love, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. In essence, all those things that it said, you'll be lacking if you don't have discipline. God's discipline leads us down that road of righteousness that we are all supposed to be growing towards. So, that's discipline. Now let's talk about God's punishment. That's what discipline is, corrective discipline. Let's talk about God's punishment. That word translates as thumos. And thumos means an outburst of passion. An outburst of passion or passionate anger in this case, directed against sin. Okay, but it's an outburst. It's a... It's a sudden, okay? It's not just rising up like a result of, okay, what it is, is you've reached the point now where it's a response to rebellion. You discipline your children, I'm trying to teach you something. I'm trying to teach you something, but there comes a point where that now becomes, it's rebellion if they don't comply. And then that teaching, that correction, okay, becomes punishment, And this is where we are. So we find that a couple places, but we only really find that in the book of Revelation. We find it the very first time that we find that version of it. Now remember, up until verse 12, all of the wrath that's talked about in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is orge wrath. It's corrective wrath. So think about that big picture, all the seals that we're seeing being opened, the mountains moving, the lightning, the thunder, the people cowering under rocks that are about to crush them, all the things that are going on on the earth is still orge wrath, meaning God's heart, God's purpose for all that is still, I'm trying to correct your behavior and time is getting close. This is your last chance to allow me to correct you through this. So it's still corrective up until we get to chapter 12, 12, 12, it talks about that word uh, thumos, but it's Satan's wrath, okay? So that is obviously far from sinless wrath. 
We really find it used, though, we fast forward a little bit to Revelation 14.10. We have that on screen. He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This scripture is where the first time that the thumos wrath of God is found. The punishing wrath. I have tried to correct you. I have tried to make you change your ways. I have tried to make you repent. And now it's time for punishment. And we see that turn right here in chapter 14, and we'll get there in a few weeks. Another one we see, Revelation 16.1, just a little bit farther down. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Again, thumos wrath. This is punishing wrath. And we see that as we escalate through, okay? We see the seals, and the seals are corrective. And then this week, we start talking about the trumpets. And we start talking about the trumpets. And it's an escalation of God's wrath. Although still at this point with the heart that we would repent of our ways, we would see our error, and we would still turn to him. Even in the midst of all this, he is still offering us that opportunity. But at some point, at some point, there has to be a price to pay. And the time for correction is over. And we'll get there. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But keep that idea of God's wrath, that corrective wrath. Let's keep that in mind as we go through and we open then the seventh seal. And we're going to do that as we walk into chapter 8. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 8. I'm going to read it to you in its entirety. I use the New American Standard. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, you can do that. Your version might read just a little bit differently. <coughs> Excuse me. But I'll read through it in its entirety right now, and then we'll go back and we'll take a look at the individual scriptures. So Revelation chapter 8, 1 through 13. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burnt up. And a third of the trees were burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, 
so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. That's intense. That's intense. So as we get started, let's, let's take apart some of these scriptures. Remember where we are. The scene in heaven, right before the seventh seal is opened. What's going on in heaven at this moment, right before the seventh seal is opened? Multitudes of angels worshiping the Lord, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They have surrounded multitudes and multitudes, it says. Too many to count and even to fathom how many there are worshiping the Lord God. There's rainbows surrounding the throne. There's elders kneeling before God. It is a loud and joyous celebration. Okay, some would say chaotic, but it is a celebration of our Lord God. And then, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, where this starts out. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. This is the beginning of the trumpet judgments. Again, an escalation. But what we see here is kind of a collective deep breath. Okay? Have you ever been in a place where things are chaos and all of a sudden it just gets quiet? And you know something's about to go down. That's the scene in heaven where the angels and the elders and everybody worshiping, there's just a moment of silent awe. Kind of the calm before the storm, if you will before the next set of judgments unleash. Now, you can talk to different scholars. We talk about pre-tribulation, rapture, post-tribulation, mid-tribulation, rapture, and it's all argued infinitely, constantly. Every single word in the revelation of Jesus Christ is argued for scholars, and they all have very, very valid points. My belief is that this, what we're about to talk about, these trumpet judgments, take place during the second half of the tribulation. Okay, so about the second three and a half years. So much has unfolded to this point. But we're kind of at that midpoint. We're moving now into that second three and a half years. So this is where we are. Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 through 5. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Okay, that moment of calm is certainly over, right? Definitely. Who knows what a censer is? Anybody have an image of what a censer is? Do we have any ex-Catholics or Catholics in here? If you are, you know what a censer is. Here's an image of what a censer looks like. You'll see these a lot in Catholic churches, especially. If you go to Israel with us, we'll talk more about that next weekend, you're going to see these, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you'll see thousands of these censers hanging in that church. But a censer, the angel's got it in his hand there, and you fill it with incense. It's got little vents at the top, and it burns, and you wave it around, and it spreads 
the incense around. All right, we can go back to the scripture. So that's kind of an image of what the censer is. Not an accurate depiction of an angel, by the way, but it's fun to look at. There's a lot of debate here, and I'll just point this out. I don't believe it, but there's a lot of debate that this angel is actually Jesus. A lot of scholars believe that, and if you believe that, you're certainly not wrong, and I'm not going to say that, but here's why I believe differently. The angel came, stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, incense given to him. What's incense represent? It's the prayers of the saints, right? It says, smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints. So our prayers rise up. And so what this is saying is that as our prayers are rising up before God, something is having to be added to them. So they're adding something to our prayers. The implication there is that our prayers in themselves are not sufficient to go before God. A lot of people will argue that Jesus, as our intercessor, that is his job, is to take our prayers and present them to God. I believe the implication, though, is that our prayers aren't sufficient on their own before God. I don't believe that that's true. Also, if you happen to have a Catholic background, you'll know the Catholic Apocrypha actually identifies this angel, who, who they believe that it is, as the angel Raphael. Now, that's not neither here nor there. We need to understand, though, that it is an angel that's doing this before, before God, and it's adding something to those prayers. We need to be careful taking one specific scripture like this or one specific image, bit of imagery, and building our theology on this can be very, very difficult to do that. So don't look at just one scripture. You could easily, easily argue that that's Jesus. I don't believe that's the case, but again, you pray and make up, make up your own mind. Either way, here's what it is, though. Those prayers, that incense that's rising up before God, what those are, those are the prayers, the fervent prayers of the saints who are here still on earth during this time. What does that tell you? That tells you that when the rapture happens, you get one group of people who go up. But then after that, after that mass, mass rapture, then you have individuals who are dying off. But at this time, during this tribulation, there are still plenty of people, plenty of warriors, missionaries, if you will, here on earth who are trying to make converts who are trying to bring people to the knowledge of Jesus, even as mountains are shifting and the stars are falling from the sky and the sun is darkened and all these things are happening, there are still believers here on earth who are trying to convince people to turn to the Lord. And what this is, this is an image. This means, to me, this means that the people who are here left on earth, those Christians who are here, trying desperately to help people understand who Christ is and the salvation that's being offered to them are not cowering under a rock somewhere saying, hopefully this will end soon and we can go home. These are people who are powerfully out in the middle of all this chaos saying, Lord, bring it on. Bring it on, Lord. Bring more chaos because if that's what it's going to take to get all these thick-headed people to realize who you are and turn to you, that's what we want. These are the prayers that during this time are wafting up before God. And it also means when the angel takes those prayers and he hurls them back down to the ground, 
the prayers of the saints when before God return to the earth and they are powerful. Never underestimate the power of your prayers when they waft up and they add to all the prayers of the saints. They will accomplish God's purpose. And that's exactly what we see happening here. It's a powerful scene. Revelation 8, 6. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Now, what we're going to see here is as we start moving through, as these trumpets are sounded. Trumpets, again, each trumpet is another judgment. Okay, And we're going to see a parallel to a lot of the plagues that happened in Egypt. You'll see that if we go all the way back to Exodus. So listen to this, Revelation uh, chapter 8, verse 7. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burnt up, and a third of the trees were burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. Very, very similar to the plague of hail that we find in Exodus 9, right? But much more intense and much more horrific. Revelation chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Okay, some imagery going on here. I believe this literally happened, but there is some imagery here. We talk about this great mountain. What is that great mountain? The great mountain is symbolic of Babylon. We find that all the way throughout Old Testament, especially where this great mountain is symbolic of Babylon. And this thing, Babylon itself, is being hurled in. And how do we know this? We go back, if we go all the way back, Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah 51, 25, says, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys the whole earth, declares the Lord. And I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags, and I will make you a burnt-out mountain. So this imagery talks about Babylon, the destruction of Babylon, basically using itself to cause its own destruction, okay, and being hurled into the sea. We're going to talk more about Babylon later, not tonight, later in the, in the, in the series here. Revelation chapter 8, verses 10 to 11. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Okay, wormwood. First of all, the great star. Let's go all the way to the top, verse 10 there. The great star, this is not indicating Satan or Jesus or anything like that. Okay, this is literally a great star, probably a comet, something like that. We'll see the others happen later. But this is literally a great star falling from heaven, burning like a torch. And this is what happens. Wormwood is the name of the star. Wormwood, does anybody know what wormwood is? Wormwood is a plant, but it's a plant that specifically is used to make poison or psychotropic drugs. There are people who actually take it to get high, but, but mainly it's poison. And just a little bit in the waters can poison the entire well or the entire watering hole. And this happened quite often back in those days where the Romans or anybody who was trying to, to ruin an army would poison the water supply along the way. It didn't take much in the water to poison that. One bit of the imagery here, though, is the polluting of the word of Christ. 
This is what we see here. This corrupted gospel makes the very water of life, the living water of Jesus Christ, makes it unattractive, makes it bitter. And this is the imagery that they're talking about here with it becoming literally bitter, corrupted gospel. And we see that happening time and time again. Romans 8, 12, uh, Revelation, I'm sorry, Revelation 8, 12. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Now, there's a little bit going on here that I need to explain. That A lot of people, a lot of scholars believe that what this means is that the third of the teachers left on the, the teachers of the true gospel left on earth will be destroyed. At this time, this is what will happen. Again, what this does, though, it parallels in a lot of ways the persecution of Rome in the early church. And in fact, there are a lot of scholars who take considerable time and effort to show that many of the things that we're talking about right now draw a direct parallel to the persecution of the church in Rome under Constantine especially. They can take the third of this and and really parse that out. If you want to study that, I recommend that you read the scripture for yourself and then study that. There's a lot of material, but we could go down that rabbit trail for a long way. So we're not going to talk about that part right now. But what we are seeing here is in the midst of this, the remaining light, the light that is remaining on the earth is beginning to dim. Those who speak and those who believe in the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that light on earth is starting to dim. We see that happening. It's not total darkness yet. There's still a hope of that light returning. Revelation 8, 13. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. There's a lot to know about this one, too. It obviously points out we've talked about four trumpets up to this point. And the four trumpets that we've talked about to this point all have one thing in common, more or less, is that they're kind of ecological disasters, right? They're things that are happening to the earth. With the remaining three trumpets, we see it start to turn demonic. And we're going to talk about that next week. But what this is, is this is an eagle seeing this coming. Why is it significant that it's an eagle and not an angel? significant because an eagle is a created being put on earth, okay? But an eagle also flies high above whatever's going on, and it can see into the distance. In this case, it can see a tide coming. And it's saying, woe be to you because I can see what's coming, and it's not pretty. And what this is, this is a parallel to what we're going to learn about in coming chapters about some witnesses. It echoes back to the prophets who came before, prophets who could see these calamities coming and were trying for the longest time to warn God's people that these things were coming. But we'll also see in chapter 11 where a couple witnesses are chosen to spread the word of what's about to happen. And we'll talk more about that later. But we see, whoa, 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 that's one woe for each remaining trumpet blast that's coming. Next week, we get into chapter 9, and that's where we start seeing the demonic torment happen. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and start heading up. So as we take a message like this, again, full of, of wrath, 
we need to understand that God's wrath is always meant to be a lifeline to us. Even in the midst of all these things that are happening, God is trying to say, look, people, I'm going to turn up the heat as high as I need to to get you to understand that you need to come to my son. And he will turn that heat up until the point comes to where there is nothing left except people who are sitting like this going, I refuse. I know, I know what's going on. I see all this, but I am not coming to Jesus. I refuse. And we will see that in a couple chapters. Then when God's correction, he says, okay, the time for correction is over. Now it is time for punishment. But God is not an indiscriminate punishing God. He's throwing us that lifeline and has since the very beginning. Jesus Christ is that lifeline. And he offers that to anybody. So the point, the point of all this is that even as all these things begin to unfold, Jesus is the only way. Jesus is and has always been the only way to avoid God's punishing wrath. We are all being corrected every day, sometimes in little ways, sometimes in big ways. And sometimes that correction hurts. Sometimes we see that correction come our way and our first impulse is how can a loving God do that or allow that to happen? My response is how can a loving God not? How can a loving God not take every opportunity to teach us the error of our ways and what the path of righteousness leads to. When we talk about John 3.16, God giving his one and only son for us on the cross so that he would take the punishment that we deserve, it is that thumos wrath, that punishment of God that Jesus took for us. This is what followers in Christ will be able to escape on this day. It's that wrath that we have Christ to thank for. We look back at Romans chapter 5, verse 9. It's the last scripture we have for today. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. It's Jesus Christ that saves us from the wrath of God. And in the coming time of tribulation, which we will go through. No matter what you believe, at some point or another, we're going through some tribulation. Remember, tribulation is pressure. It can be internal or external. But we're going to go through it. And in that time, we can either be corrected or ultimately we can be punished. The choice is ours. We're not being blown about without a say in the matter. We have a say. And that say in the matter very first and foremost turns with repentance. We turn away from those things that we know are sinful behaviors and we turn towards Jesus. So if you're sitting here right now and you know Jesus Christ, first of all, congratulations because that's not an easy step. No matter if you've known Jesus since the time you were a baby and you don't remember ever not knowing Jesus or you turned to him yesterday or 10 minutes ago. The word says you are saved. It doesn't mean you're not going to go through some stuff. 
but you will be saved from the punishing wrath of God. If you don't know Jesus, there is time. We need to turn away from our sinful ways. Part of our sinful ways is just, it boils all the way down to thinking, I can do this myself. It's that spirit of pride that so many people rely on thinking, I can do this myself and why do I need God? And it gets worse, those people who are successful for a period. We see people who are like, look, I'm making a good living, I've got a good family, things are going pretty good and I don't know Jesus, why do I need him? Okay, things might look good today. What are they going to look like when you start hearing trumpets from heaven? So the time is now. There is no more time. Scripture says you won't know when that time is coming. That time is now to make that decision. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, repent of those behaviors that are separating you from the fullness of what God has, from the fullness of being able to hear what he has for you, your mission for the rest of your days here on earth. If you don't know him, now's the time to turn to him. And it's just as easy as confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so if you're here and you have not made that decision, I want to invite you to do that right now. There's no better time than right now just to simply say, I can't do it on my own. And more than that, I don't want to be found when the trumpets sound not knowing Jesus. So you can make that confession right now. We have a prayer team in the back who would be happy to pray that with you. You can see me after service and I will talk to you about what that means. There are books in the back that we have, New Christian Handbook for people who just maybe made that decision like, I don't know what my next step is. You can see a prayer team member or anybody on staff, somebody on the worship team and we will help you walk through that. The rest of us, let's take a moment though Let's thank Jesus for what he did and let's repent of those things that the Lord puts on our heart that we need to set aside right now. You can pray a prayer of repentance. You can go back and share those things with the prayer team or you can write them on a note paper that's at both crosses. Pin them to the cross. And I'll take them and I'll pray over them for you. Those things that we need to repent of, that we need to leave behind, lay them literally at the foot of the cross. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be our navigator, to be our lifeline, to be our savior through the times that are coming ahead. And Father, we want not only to know your son, but we want the fullness of who he is. And so Father, we lay aside and turn away from any behavior that we are walking in that separates us from you. Father, we invite you to lay those things on our heart that we need to repent of. Maybe we don't even realize. Show us those blind spots. Show us those areas that we need to turn away from right now that are keeping us from the fullness of who you are. And Father, we give those things to you. And in our hearts, we turn away from them. That's not who we want to be. That's not who you made us to be. Father, we are so much more than that. We are overcomers, and in your son, Jesus, we are saved. So, Father, we thank you for who you are and who we are to you. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.
Church, there's no better way to celebrate something like this, the revelation of who he is, than to take communion together. At the crosses, we have communion there. We have juice and bread and gluten-free crackers. You can serve yourselves at either cross. Or Gabe and I have wine up front, and we would be happy to serve you communion up front. But take all the time that you need to reflect or repent or pray or any way you need to respond, and then take communion when you're ready. Worship team will dismiss you after a couple songs. Thank you, guys. Thank you.